Good morning. Welcome to Tomo Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure uh, to open up God's Word with you. Before we get started this morning, there's a few people that I I want to welcome and uh, just let you know they're here. I'd like uh, Jordan and Becca Kaminsky, if you guys could stand up. We want to say hi to you guys. I know they're around here somewhere. There they are in the back row. Um, So the Kaminskys, uh, Jordan grew up here and uh, they are headed to Russia as a part of our global missions effort. And so today, after this service, we've got a lunch down in our student center we want to invite you to, uh, to get to hear a little bit more about um, what they'll be doing and an opportunity to pray for them. We also have some special guests here with us all the way from uh, California. Jay and Deborah Evans are here. If you guys would stand and wave at everyone. I've gotten to know them uh, this week through our friends, the Savolkas. Uh, the Evans lead a ministry called Outside the Bowl, where they partner with ministries really around the world now, feeding thousands. Thousands and thousands of children every day partnering with Christian ministries. And so if you want to check them out a little more, go to OutsideTheBowl.org. But it's a great ministry, and I want to thank the Savolkas for introducing me to what they're doing and to them. And so we want to welcome you guys to Tomball Bible Church. We're glad that you're here. Um, We're about to jump into something. And those of you guys who've been with us this summer, you know that we've been going through the life of David. And um, up until Friday, I had a plan of a sermon I was going to preach about the death of Saul and David's response to that. It was a pretty good sermon, but you're not going to get to hear it today. Um, Because something happened on Friday that I think as the church we've got to step back from, think about, and address. And if you haven't been following the news, I'll let you know that, that on Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that they had the authority to redefine the family and the institution of marriage. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that from a biblical perspective. And I would say this is it, you know, if you have your kids here in the room and you don't want to go through that conversation with them right now, I understand that. I want you to pick the time that you're going to have that conversation with them. But we're going to do that in the room today. So we have children's ministry available for kids and I encourage you to take advantage of that if you don't feel like it's the moment to have that conversation. And so I want to pray, and in that we give you a chance if you want to slide out with Junior and drop him off in the children's ministry to do that, and then we'll jump into God's Word on this significant cultural issue this morning. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are good, we thank you that you are our King, and that you are the only supreme authority in this land and in our hearts. We pray that you would open your word to us this morning, that we would see it with clarity, and we pray that we would respond in faithfulness to what you have communicated to us. We ask for your blessing on our church and on our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question before the court this week was something much broader maybe than what we thought. See, the issue that people are discussing is the issue of what they would call marriage equality. Do we treat one marriage as equal to another? Or do people have equal access to the same institution of marriage? And what the court decided to take up is a different question. At least that's what they ended up addressing. And I guess they never really ask it to begin with because the deeper question beyond the issue of equality or or how we view different relationships is simply this. What is a marriage? See, before we can discuss a marriage equality, we've got to define the institution. We've got to understand what it is. And for millennia, thousands and thousands of years, marriage has been one thing, and the family has been one thing. And as of Friday, the law in the land, the United States of America, has changed the meaning of the term. 
And I want us to biblically be able to define it. And so, Kenny, here's what I would like us to be able to do today, knowing that we're not going to cover anything comprehensively. And there's going to be a lot of questions left unanswered, and that's just something we have to deal with. I'm going to put some resources online for you to read more if you want to be able to answer questions of people who might ask what you believe or what the Bible says. So we're going to give you that and make that available. That's another reason I encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter so that you'll get those updates. Um, But we'll start with this. We're going to ask the question, what is marriage? Then we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And then we're going to begin to ask the questions, what does this mean? What does this ruling really mean to us? And what do we do next as the people of God? And so I want to jump into this and ask, what does the Scripture teach regarding marriage? And I want to ask you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, Jesus speaks regarding the nature and meaning of marriage. To set this up for you, a group of Pharisees have come and they've asked Jesus a question. They want to trap him with this tricky question regarding divorce. And the question they ask, you're going to see, is can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? Of course, that's not much of a question. You'll see how Jesus answers it. And in the midst of that, he communicates to us the design of God for marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus gives us what is the basic formula and design for marriage. Now, Jesus quotes the book of Genesis in doing this and says, since the beginning, God created male and female to be compatible with one another. And that marriage is defined by a man and a woman leaving their father and mother, cleaving to one another as a commitment, and then consummating the relationship as to become one, not just spiritually, not just economically, not just emotionally, but physically. And so that God's design for human interaction, for sexual intimacy, and for the family begins with this, the devotion of one man to one woman for one lifetime. That's the simple formula for marriage according to Jesus. Marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now the question arises, well, what about divorce and what should we do there? Jesus is going to address that later on. And what he's going to tell them is that, look, there are rare instances in which divorce may be acceptable and even in that where there is sexual immorality on behalf of one of the partners it's allowed because of hardness of heart and it's important to understand that that divorce may not always be sin but is always the result of sin there are circumstances jesus gives where divorce is permissible largely the unfaithfulness in terms of sexual morality of one of the spouses. In American history, prior to the no-fault divorce, there were three reasons that you could get a divorce. We called it the three A's. Adultery, abuse, or abandonment. And so if someone had an abusive spouse and it was something that threatened them physically, they could leave and secure a divorce. If someone had a spouse who was unfaithful, they could secure a divorce. Or if their spouse simply left them, they could secure a divorce. And there was no other means legally in the United States until the sexual revolution of 
uh, divorce. And that's kind of built around this idea that while there may be reasons that are legitimate for a divorce and for someone to have a divorce may not necessarily be a sin, it is always the result of sin or what Jesus calls a hardness of heart towards one another. So someone who has an unfaithful spouse, if they secure a divorce because of that, Jesus has said that's permissible, but it is the result of hardness of heart and sin in the marriage. And so while we recognize divorce to be a reality, a reality for many people in this room, it's not necessarily a sin. It is always a result of sin because the equation by God's design is one man, one woman, one lifetime. Now, I want you to see that this isn't just a human institution, that it goes deeper than that. In Ephesians chapter 5, the scriptures are going to lay out for us the reason that God designed marriage this way. And I want you to begin with me in verse 31, because we're not only going to find the dynamics of a marriage and how it's supposed to work, we're also going to find the symbolism and significance of the marriage relationship. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. The simplest thing to begin with here is the dynamics of how the married relationship should work. It's a relationship in which the husband protects and provides, lovingly leads his family, and the wife submits in respect and honor as a helpmate to her husband. And the design is one where they complement each other. Where in God's design, they function to bless one another and their children and all who are around them. And so the biblical marriage is a selfless, loving leadership of the husband and a selfless commitment and honor to the, from the wife towards her husband. And he says, in the midst of that functioning, it becomes an illustration or a depiction of God's love for his children, of Christ's love for his church. Christ playing the role of the husband figure who provides for and protects and blesses and the church in submission to Christ. It's important that we understand that symbolism as the point of marriage, that marriage is not just about establishing a human relationship. It's about depicting a divine relationship because that shapes the theological understanding of what marriage is. Because marriage, in its essence, is the relation of husband and wife reflecting the relationship of God and humanity. We can't then transplant an additional husband into the relationship. A husband-husband interaction can't illustrate the relationship of God to his people. And a wife-wife interaction cannot illustrate God's relationship to his people. By design, since the beginning, it's the bringing together of one man and one woman for one lifetime. Now, gay marriage is not the first time in America we've walked away from God's design, but that doesn't mean that that makes it okay. So we begin with that. This is what the scriptures say about marriage. Now, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, the Bible mentions it about six times, and in every time it gives one consistent message. And I want to give you two of the texts because we simply don't have time to address everything. In Romans chapter 1, we get a clear word from the Apostle Paul in verse 26. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
The scriptures again will address the issue of homosexual activity. And beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, you're going to see this quite clearly. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to give you three basic summary points regarding the Scripture's teaching on homosexual activity. Number one, it's a sin. And it's a sin that brings destruction and separation in your relationship with God. The Bible speaks with absolute clarity on this issue. Number two, it's incompatible with God's will and Christian testimony. You see, as Christians, we are all people who struggle with sin habitually and perpetually. When we have different sins, we're all wired differently, but we struggle. And what the scriptures are laying out here is that someone who runs headlong into that sin cannot call themselves at the same time a follower of Christ. That that built into our walk with Jesus is the reality of a struggle with sin, but we struggle and we war and we fight against it and we submit to the word of God and the spirit of God so that we might learn to walk in victory. But we don't call it okay. It's ultimately incompatible with being a part of the kingdom. Additionally, you'll find that it is a destructive act to those who engage in it. You see that in Romans 1. He says they incurred the due penalty within themselves. One of the realities that we don't want to talk about anymore is that there are a host of psychological and medical ramifications for engaging in homosexual activity that you don't hear about. That all sorts of issues like depression, anxiety disorders, alcohol and substance abuse, obesity, high blood pressure, all sorts of things your probability to struggle with that exponentially increases if you engage in homosexual activity. It's just a reality. But it's one we don't want to talk about anymore because it doesn't sound nice. It's not PC. It's just true. And it affirms what the Scriptures say, that those who engage in that endure hardship and difficulty because of it. The Scripture is clear. Now, upon saying that, I I know that I have gone against some significant cultural narratives. And there's a couple really simple objections that you'll generally hear. And so I want to very quickly address those before I move on to what I really want to talk about today is what do we do next? Uh, The first objection is this. uh, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Which, can I just put a side note, is that you would be relying on the Bible as credible to make that claim. And if you believe the Bible is credible, it's kind of foolish. But but let me say this, is that Jesus never said anything about rape either. Did you know that? But nobody is throwing that out as a defense that it's okay. It's ultimately an argument from silence, which is a logical fallacy. What Jesus did do in Matthew 19 when he teaches on marriage is lock, stock, and barrel wholesale embrace the sexual ethics of the Old Testament. Because here's what he says. He says, you can't have a divorce... Unless your spouse commits sexual immorality. And he's basing that upon the teaching of the Old Testament as it defines what is and isn't appropriate in terms of sexual behavior. He endorses it without question or exception. If Jesus had wanted to clear it up, he would have cleared it up. But what he did was endorse entirely the Old Testament, including statements like, for a man to sleep with a man as he lie with a woman is an abominable thing before the Lord. So Jesus doesn't address it directly and personally, but he does endorse the Old Testament. In addition, you're going to hear this objection. I was born this way. 
I was just born this way. And, and let me give you just a few thoughts on that. The first thing I would say is that's an assertion absent any actual fact or science behind it. There is not a shred of legitimate scientific evidence that would suggest that is true. There are a few studies that have been debunked because of a number of reasons. We're not going to go into all of it. But again, we can't say that because it's not PC. Obviously, if you've been around children, you know that's not the case. So when I was six years old, I found girls gross and really enjoyed hanging out with boys. I wasn't gay. I was six. Children at that age do not generally express sexual interests in anyone. Now I say this, we don't know how this all works. We're not certain about how people's attractions develop. We don't know. Which is why I think the final statement regarding this issue, which is a biblical one, is incredibly important. Whether or not you have a natural bent towards this sin is irrelevant as to whether or not it's a sin. See, we know as a matter of fact that there are some people with a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism and substance abuse. That's actually proven scientifically. And no one looks at the guy who's a drunk and says, it's okay, you were born that way. Why? Because it's wrong. And we know it's wrong. The scriptures will tell us this, is that every one of us was born and brought forth in iniquity. That we are bent towards sin. Now we're bent towards sin differently, and the reality that we're bent towards it is not an excuse that makes it okay. That's why we need the gospel. My favorite of the objections as a pastor and and student of the scriptures is, well, that's just your interpretation of the Bible. And I've really racked my brain to find an alternative reading to a man who lies with a man as he does with a woman has done an abominable thing before the Lord. Like I'm looking for the alternate scenario that I would be able to walk away from that statement. Or when he says, hey, don't be deceived. Uh, Those who engage in homosexual activity will not enter the kingdom. I'm I'm looking for an alternative reading that says, oh, God's okay with this. There's not one. There is absolutely no way to claim to be a Bible-believing Christian and yet say homosexual activity is okay before God. It is completely impossible and incompatible. And I want to share a quote with you. There's a man named Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a professor of New Testament studies at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Now, he doesn't believe what we believe. Dr. Johnson is is a gay rights advocate. And he is a man who's very... Instrumental in shaping the next generation of United Methodist pastors there at the seminary. And I'll let you sort that one out. But I want you to hear what he says. He says, this task demands intellectual honesty. And I have little patience with efforts to make scripture say something other than what it says. Through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to an authority that when we declare that same-sex unions are holy and good, and what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience. Now, I want you to understand this. I disagree entirely with everything that just the man just said, but I appreciate his honesty. 
I have little tolerance for someone who would tell me that's just your interpretation of what the Bible says. No, that's the plain meaning of the words. If you don't want to believe it, just be honest and say, I don't believe it. But don't play games and say we're Bible believing Christians and we think this is acceptable behavior. The Bible is clear. And you can play origami with it all day, but it's just dishonest. So, one of the issues I think we've got to address is the perspective that we are singling homosexuality out as if it were a special sin. And it's not. It's a part of a list, a host of things that are common to the human condition that we struggle with. I would venture to say that very few of us who are adults in this room could stand with a clear conscience before God related to our sexual morality as if we had never done anything. So why is it a big deal? Well, here's the reason it's a big deal. I don't think we pick this fight. I don't think we have a choice in addressing it either. You see, if you look at, at, at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, the list of sins that, that are recorded as things that will keep you out of the kingdom of God, it's the only one that they have parades to celebrate. I want you to think about that. Adultery is on the list. And in 23 states, adultery is illegal and three of them it's a felony. And no one's fighting to change that. You know why? They don't have good PR and they don't have adultery pride parades. We all generally think it's wrong. So, so we don't stand up and loudly say adultery is wrong because it's generally accepted. The same thing with con men and swindlers. Everyone knows that's wrong. We don't have to stand up and say that's wrong. It's assumed and understood. The reason we stand and say homosexuality is a sin before a holy God is because it's the one on the list that everyone's beating the drum to celebrate. And we can, as people of good conscience, allow those that we care for and love to run headlong into destruction and not say anything. Ultimately, we are against every sin that keeps men and women out of the kingdom because we love them, even if they listen to what we say and call us hateful. So here's the reality of the world we live in. As of Friday, the law of the land in all 50 states in the United States of America is gay marriage. Men and women can walk into courts or a pastor who doesn't believe the word and they can get a marriage license signed and be officially married in the United States. And I want to let you know something. There's going to be a lot of political wrangling around this for years to come. I don't see any path forward that that changes anytime soon. So what does it mean? Well, let me tell you first what it isn't. This is not persecution. No one is breaking through these doors to come arrest me for what I'm saying. No one's interrogating you for being here. When I get done with this, we're going to post it online and the whole world can listen to it. And I have no fear that I'll be arrested. Some people might call me bad names, but I'm not going to go to jail. Persecution is different. Persecution is when for preaching the gospel, someone burns down your church. Someone rapes and murders your wife and abducts your children. And we have brothers and sisters in the faith who endure that. And I don't want to cheapen that by saying our discomfort is persecution. Let me tell you what this is. It's the celebration of sin. That's what this is. This is Mardi Gras minus the king cakes. That's what this is. This isn't persecution. What it truthfully is for us as American Christians is a wake-up call. Because nothing ultimately has changed in terms of the viewpoints and perspectives of most Americans from Friday till today. 
this didn't become a reality on Friday. It's been building for years. And let me illustrate it to you this way. In September 11, 2001, the planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and that field in Pennsylvania. And a few days later, they organized a prayer rally, a national call to prayer, in which the people of America gathered around, were encouraged with the words of the Scriptures. And America's pastor, Billy Graham, shepherded us through this. Ten years later, the 10th year anniversary, September 1st, 2011, they hold a similar gathering at Yankee Stadium and not a single Christian clergyman was invited. We find ourselves squarely on the margins of our culture. And this ruling is a wake-up call to remind us of that. That we live in a culture where the Christian perspective on life and truth and beauty is not valued or desired. That is too controversial to be heard. When President Obama was inaugurated the first time, a prominent evangelical pastor named Rick Warren prayed at the inauguration. In his second inauguration, they invited a prominent evangelical pastor, a man named Louis Giglio. If you're not familiar with Louis, let me tell you a little about him. He leads a group called the Passion Movement, where they gather young American Christians together to worship and to pray. They encourage them to make the most of their life. And the number one social issue on Louis' agenda is ending human trafficking. This is the guy that says, stop human trafficking. But 10 years ago in a sermon, he read Romans chapter 1. He was uninvited. And and I just want to set the stage for you so that we understand where we are. Because the number one thing that we have to know to move forward is where we are today. Because the path forward, wherever it leads, begins with a square, honest assessment about where we are. And here's the deal. We are exiles in our own country. Now, the good thing for us as the people of God is that we've done quite well in exile before. And the scriptures actually give us a playbook on what to do in this moment. If you're uncertain about how to move forward, I would encourage you uh, to, to find your way to the books of First and Second Peter. Written to men and women of faith on exile whose perspectives were not valued, desired, or wanted. So what do we do? As the men and women of God in exile in our homelands, I want to give you four very simple things that that we can all commit to today. And and the first is this. I want you to take a deep breath and log off of Facebook for a while. Those of y'all who use Facebook, you know what I'm talking about. There's There's a meme running around that says it looks like a war broke out between a bag of Skittles and the Confederates in my Facebook page. Because that's what it looks like. Look, there's a whole bunch of culture wars going on. I'm going to just tell you this. And I haven't scientifically researched this. I did study communication in my undergrad. But I want to tell you, I'm I'm 100% certain of this, is that no one has ever changed their mind on a substantial issue because they saw a witty meme on Facebook. If you don't know what a meme is, it's a picture with some words on top. I didn't invent the term. No one is changing their minds. And if you've observed them, I know some of you probably got wrangled into them. You can't win. And let me tell you why you can't win. One, this is about a statement of truth. And we have uh, a real different understanding about what truth is. Second, you can't display the love of Christ online on Facebook. Because here's what's going to happen. You might engage in a thoughtful dialogue with someone you know. And then they've got someone you don't know who comes in. And I don't know about you, but when people start calling me names, my Christian charity starts to kind of waver. 
There's no need to engage there. You can't win. So we posted online through Twitter and Facebook that we were going to do this, that we were doing a change of course and what we're going to talk about. And immediately we had a guy trolling and start, you know, we're just trying to tell people how to ruin their lives and not feel bad about it. And we were really appreciative of his comments. So we didn't reply because here's the deal. Whatever this guy's issues are, I can't fix them in 140 characters or less. So let it go. You have friends You want to have conversations with real people about these issues? I would encourage you to do that. But online, you can't win. Second thing I would tell you is that when we do engage in the conversations, we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I want to give you an example of this. I want to ask you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read verses 9 and 10, but I want to continue to verse 11 because we want to tell the whole truth this morning. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we stop there, that's purely a statement of judgment, but we have to continue the paragraph. And such were some of you, but you were washed, You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let me tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on homosexuality. It is a sin that grieves the heart of God, that if not repented of, will lead to your ultimate and final destruction. But the grace of God through the death of Jesus is sufficient to do several things over all of these sins. First, to justify that because of the blood of Jesus, you'd be declared not guilty. Second, to sanctify and to cleanse us so that not only are we removed from the guilt of it, but God has gives us victory over the temptation of him. So the path forward for those who struggle with same-sex attraction is not an either or, all or nothing. Either I am going to be magically healed of this and it's going to go away or I'm going to give in to it. I want to tell you a very real reality for almost all of us in our sin patterns is that we learn by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit and the support of His people to walk in victory over our temptations even when the temptations linger. Even when they stay. That's the path of discipleship, is learning to walk in obedience and victory by the power of the Spirit of God, even if the temptations linger. That's the whole truth. It is a sin, but Jesus can give forgiveness and victory. And the good news around the issue of homosexuality is not what the court gave on Friday. The good news is what we just read. The good news is that by the blood of Jesus, we can be forgiven and cleansed and transformed. The third thing I would say that we're to do, first, we need to breathe and step away from social media. Second, we need to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And third, we need to focus on our mission as the church. You see, if our calling as the church in America were to be to keep people from engaging in homosexual activity, we have failed, and we should just hang up the cleats and walk away. See, but that's not what Jesus has commanded us to do. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus gives a great commission where he tells the church what her task is to be. And I want you to hear it. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not nine people in robes. It's been given to Jesus. And this is what he says. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I want you to understand something. When that ruling came down on Friday, our calling didn't change an ounce. It didn't change. We let the politicians wrangle out what they're going to do. What, what are we to do? Make disciples. Our mission hasn't changed. Truthfully, our culture didn't change. We just got a, a, a real heavy dose of self-awareness about where we are. Our task is to make disciples. And here's what that entails. Teaching them the truth of God, the gospel, so that they can be saved. And as we share our lives and the word with them, helping people grow into maturity and victory over sin, fruitfulness in ministry. That, that's what we're called to do. And that hasn't changed a bit. Love your neighbors, make disciples, reach the nations. The game is still on. God hasn't called us to be the moral auditors of our world. He's called us to be a movement of disciple makers that will reach people with the gospel. The scriptures are clear about what is sin and what isn't. And we preach a message of forgiveness and we share in the words of Jesus when he says, go and sin no more. The fourth and I think most significant around this particular issue is that as the people of God, we need to demonstrate a compelling vision for marriage. You see, the assault on marriage didn't begin on Friday. It began a long time ago. And it's been going on for a while. In fact, one of the things that's wild to look at is that the divorce rate, particularly in Western Europe, and we're just a little behind the curve, is going down dramatically. But the reason it's going down will confuse you. It's going down because people are simply bypassing marriage. They might live together 15, 20 years, have kids with one another, and never get married. And in the midst of a culture that dishonors marriage, the job of the men and women of God who are to hold marriage in high esteem is to create a a compelling vision for marriage so that Ephesians 5 reality of husbands protecting, providing for, and lovingly leading their wives and wives submitting to and honoring their husband as a display of the nature of God's love to his people has to become a reality. So we've got to dig deep, not only in our own lives, but premarital counseling anymore doesn't begin three months before the marriage. It begins in elementary Sunday school. It believes as we gather with our children around our tables, we need to create a compelling vision for marriage. And the reason I think this is important strategically in our culture is in 1973, there was a ruling called Roe v. Wade, which made abortion the law of the land in America. And I want you to understand that what the church did is that we, based on the word of God, value the lives of children. And so we decided to make a concerted effort to do two things. And you're going to see it, and we all need to press in even further on this issue. Number one is we were going to create places for women with unplanned pregnancies to get help. And crisis pregnancies sprung up all over. Second, we were going to dig deep into caring for these children once they were born. And so the effort around adoptive and foster care and Orphan care in general has exploded in the church, and we've created and are creating a culture of life. Now, the reason I think this is important is in 1973, the law said abortion was acceptable and legal. And today, years later, all the courts still fight over things. American people are more likely to identify as pro-life than they did in 1973. The playbook for us forward is not so much legislative stuff, although maybe someday that might happen. It's a compelling vision of marriage that shows our culture something better. 
And that begins with us, and that's within our power. Finally, as a word of encouragement, let me tell you this. I know it seems crazy for many of you. I would be a liar if I said I wasn't shocked. I actually expected to see things go down a different way. The church can thrive in this. This is not the sound of defeat. I want you to think about the New Testament church. It exploded in cities like Ephesus and Corinth and Rome. And I want to tell you a little bit about them. Ephesus' economy was built around sexual immorality in public. They would have people come from around the Roman world for festivals, and it was part of their religious activity. It wasn't just kind of something they did on the side when no one was looking, but wild, ridiculous things as a religious expression of devotion. We haven't seen anything like that yet. In Corinth, the number one job path was prostitution. The church thrived in Corinth in a, in a seaport that's primary economic driver was prostitution. And the church explodes. Rome, which exported pagan idolatry around the world, became a hub of Christianity. Think about that. Our New Testaments are full of the story of the church providing an alternative lifestyle to the world around us. And I want you to understand that phrase. Faithfully following Jesus is not the norm in America. It is the alternative lifestyle. We find ourselves on the margins and the opportunity for us to minister in the margins as distinct and different from the world around us, is not new to the church. And it's an opportunity for us to do what Scriptures say and to shine like the stars in the heavens. Let's keep this really simple. We need to forget for a moment the culture war and begin to fight the gospel war. That's fought as we invest in the lives of other people, proclaim the gospel, serve the poor, and make disciples. That's our core business. Let's don't be discouraged by the other thing. Jesus is still king, and we can still trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in the midst of a world that seems to be spiraling out of control, that you hold all things in your hands. We thank you that you have given us a clear calling for our lives. That we can have hope in you, that we can be used by you, and that we can walk in faithfulness to you by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to do that. That you would not allow us in our flesh to to lead down the road that says everything's okay, or to lead in the other way that, that is spiteful and hateful. But by your spirit, we would be a people of love. A people who at the same time can say, that's not okay, and I love you, and I want to introduce you to Jesus. And Lord, we know that even in doing that, even with the best intentions, we'll struggle. We also know that it won't be received well in many cases. And so I pray for you to give us an attitude of grace, for you to strengthen and encourage us for the road ahead. And we long for the day that we see you again. And we pray that by your Spirit's leading, we would get to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.